Thank you, Wayne. Wayne's prayer reminded me of this, thinking about this Christmas season coming up here at Crossings. Uh, it can get a bit overwhelming whenever you were planning all these services and everything that's going on in the church, what all happens around here. Uh, we're going to have 19 total Christmas Eve candlelight or candlelight services around the Christmas Eve time frame. Uh, 19 different services, and, and none of that could happen uh, without you guys in the room and all the volunteers here at this church. Uh, we, we have a decent amount of staff, but, but our church runs because of everyone in the body, uh, everyone in the congregation. That's the only reason Crossings works. God uses all of us. So I just want to say thank you. I see a lot of you guys serving in and out of this church all the time, and so I just want to take a moment just to say thank you. We couldn't do that without you. Uh, well, this week, we are on lesson four of our study of the kings, some of the kings of the Old Testament, and we're going to end next week with our last lesson before Christmas break on a king that appears in the New Testament. We're going to have our last lesson on Herod, Herod the Great. Uh, this lesson this week, we're going to be covering Hezekiah, and you know, last or the week before Thanksgiving, last time we met, we covered Jehu. We talked about Godfather, part one, two, and three, just so you can remember that one a little bit. So uh, we, 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 there's some fascinating characters in the Bible, and Hezekiah is a great one to study. Uh, where we are in time, real quick, I just want to make sure you guys you kind of see, if you, go, if you have that, that chart that I gave you the first week we, we, we talked, uh, pull that out for a second. If not, just know... You know, we're at a pretty critical moment in history here in the time of Hezekiah. You're going to see when I get into the text that the northern kingdom gets overrun by the Assyrians. And and in all honesty, this time, the time under Hezekiah, should have been the last moment that the world ever knew the Jewish people. Uh, The people of God, the the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the Hebrew, however you want to say it, they should have been wiped off the map completely, completely removed from history, and we should have never heard another word about it. Uh, And we'll, we'll kind of show that here in this cycle. God does some incredible things through the story, through Hezekiah, uh, that we're going to talk about today. But I just want to make sure I I frame this just a bit before we get going. We have our northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, So Jehu was a king of Israel. Ahab was a king of Israel. The northern ten tribes of Israel uh, called Israel. We have the southern kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah is going to be the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. So just make sure you're kind of thinking that way before we get into the text today. Uh, this this text that we're going to cover today is in 2 Kings, I think, 18 and 19. Yep, 2 Kings 18 and 19. And it's a text that should be familiar to the vast majority of us in here because Cole Fakes taught out of this text probably two, three years ago. Uh, he taught on the Rabshakeh. And it was one of my most favorite lessons Cole did. It's a lesson he gave that I've thought about a lot. Uh, I remember whenever we were in Israel this year, I was standing on the southern steps there in Jerusalem, and I remember just thinking about this story, thinking about this incredible horde of a Syrian army who had been at the gates uh, that Hezekiah had to really stare down. Uh, it was a really good lesson he did. I'm going to try to take it a slightly different direction than where he went. Uh, but the real big point I want to make today is that many people in our lives are going to make us promises. Uh, we're going to get promises thrown at us all the time. The question is, which promises are we going to trust? Who, who, who's making those promises? Who are we going to, who are we going to actually trust? The promises of God, the promises that come from the Christian life, 
are, are in, under attack at all times. And I don't think anyone would be shocked to, to hear say that. And that's not me trying to make a big deal out of anything or me trying to play a victim uh, or anything like that. But the Christian values, the Christian promises are definitely under attack through the world. And it's easy for us to trust in those promises of God, to trust in the, in the life that we're told about uh, here in the Bible whenever everything's going well. But when push comes to shove, whenever the rubber hits the road, whenever life throws the curveball, or whenever just, just we are in immense times of suffering or decision points, sometimes it can be a lot harder to trust in the promises of God, especially whenever you can't see God's perspective at any one given point in time as well. Uh, it's, it, it's even easy sometimes whenever you may be suffering, whenever it's only you who are suffering, to trust in the promises of God. But whenever you see that you putting your faith in the promises of God or putting pr- faith in this Christian life, you think it's making your kids suffer or your grandkids or your friends around you. If you see that they're being impacted, it might be a little bit harder to trust in the promises of God. In this story today, we're going to see the people of God really being forced to make a decision as to who they're going to trust. But it wasn't just their own lives on the line. It was the lives of their kids, the lives of the women and children all around them, the lives of the most vulnerable, who they were going to trust at that, that critical, critical point uh, in just the normal, everyday people of Jerusalem, their life. So in this story today, I really want us, as we start reading the text, I want you to try not to associate yourself with this guy named the Rabshakeh. I don't want you to associate yourself with the Assyrian king. I don't even want you to really associate yourself with Hezekiah that much, the king of Judah. I want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of the everyday people behind the walls of Jerusalem whenever all this story unfolds today. So, a little bit of things going on in history. Uh, The northern kingdom in our story is going to fall to the Assyrian Empire. Uh, So those ten tribes of Israel are going to be kind of lost to history, uh, overrun by the Assyrians. Um, From a biblical perspective, just a context, the prophet Jonah, Jonah and the whale, that story would have occurred 50 years ago where Jonah was being told to go to Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So it's 50 years after the time of Jonah, apparently the Assyrians did not get the message completely, uh, and you know they're out for blood pretty much all over the world. I gave you a bit of a map here of the Assyrian Empire at the time of Sennacherib, and, and I've heard from these guys back here at this table, I'm spending too much time with Terry Fakes, uh, and that's fine, I'll take that. So I just want you to see, this, this empire is a massive empire. This would have been the most, uh, probably the most powerful empire in the world at this point in time. This is, we don't talk about the Assyrians as much because there's not as much recorded history on them. Uh, but this was a, an incredible, incredible, sophisticated, powerful empire and a brutal empire. Uh, at this time, uh, probably around the time that this occurs, Amos and Hosea in the Bible, those prophets that you'll find in the Old Testament, would have been prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel. And what we're going to see here is we're going to see Micah and Isaiah really being the prophets who are prophesying to the people of Judah at this point in time. So just so you see, as you read the Bible, uh, remember we talked about this in week one, remember who these prophets are actually talking to and what's going on in history so that you can understand what the people who were getting the message actually were hearing, what they were going through at that point in time. So Micah and Isaiah were the prophets at the time talking through Judah. So I want to read real quick in Second Kings chapter 17. I'm going to start there for just a second. 17 verses 22. And it says this, The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did, talking about the northern kingdom. 
They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all of his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and all these other areas and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. So the Assyrians have a very interesting strategy. You know, whenever they go and they conquer territories, they don't just conquer and let the people stay there. They actually will take the people who are in an area and disperse them out into other areas of their empire. And then they'll bring people from other areas of the empire and put them back in that area. And they do that. It's a genius strategy. They do it to make sure that people who have been conquered don't kind of regain strength and come back and try to rebel against. It's, a, it's actually it's a very, very smart tactical decision. So I just want you to see the northern kingdom has completely fallen. And if you look at a map of the kind of kingdom of Israel, including Judah and Israel, the northern kingdom is the vast majority of the landmass uh, of the kingdom of Israel that was originally constructed. Uh, Mike and Isaiah are going to be talking to the people of Judah, and Hezekiah becomes king of Judah around this time, and he comes from a long line of kings of Judah who were not very faithful to God, who had not led the people well, who had really allowed all the idols and the worship of other gods to continue in the area of Judah from, you know, and he, the other kings had not really made that go away. And so Hezekiah comes on the scene, and he really restores a lot of the credibility of Judah. He really tries to get the people to repent, and, and he's a pretty successful king, relatively speaking, into that regard. So let me read. I want to introduce Hezekiah to you. And I'm going to read chapter 18 in Second Kings, uh, just a couple of verses. It says, In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to, began to reign. And in verse 3 it says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. That's, that's a great, I mean, if you go through and you read through the First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and you read through the prophets, that's a glowing endorsement in the Bible. There's not too many kings who did that. If you go back to that chart that we looked at in week one, he had the thumbs up, the thumbs down, the thumbs sideways. There's not too many thumbs up, and Hezekiah is a thumbs up. He, he got the people to repent. He did what he ought to do as king of Judah. He did a very good job. So let's look there again. I'm going to switch over a little bit, and I'm going to start there in halfway through verse 7. Hezekiah does something a little interesting, um, and he starts to rebel against the king of of Assyria. Uh, He says he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. So we need to understand what's going on with the Assyrian empire right now. So So just think about this. The Assyrians have come in from the north, and they've conquered all of Israel. And Sennacherib is the king of Assyria at the moment. And Sennacherib, his predecessor, had really been a fantastic king. And he had expanded the empire into the map that you really see. Uh, He had fought successfully all over the place, developed a very, very strong empire. And 
Sennacherib, though, this Assyrian king was not quite as capable as his daddy was, right? He just, he wasn't quite as good. And so in the first few years of Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib was really busy down in Babylon trying to contain and, and really conquer Babylon from those people at the time. And in the midst of this time, when the Assyrians were a bit distracted, uh, the, there was an alliance that began to form with some pretty interesting parties, some people who've pretty much constantly been at war with each other throughout all of biblical history. So Judah, under Hezekiah, allies with Egypt, which is a bit of a big no-no in the Bible, uh, if you remember through multiple stories where that's not quite condoned. They ally with Egypt, they ally with Phoenicia and the Philistines as well. And so just think about all the different battles and wars we've read about in the Old Testament where all these people are fighting each other. But they've kind of looked at each other and said, these guys are massive, they are huge, they're conquering everybody, let's be allies, let's resist the Assyrian invasion. So... Uh, Sennacherib or, or Hezekiah was, was certain that at some point in time, Sennacherib would not be content with just taking over Israel. He knew that he was going to come for Judah. And so he fortified a lot of the cities in Judah. He fortified in a big way Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem, knowing that at some point in time, an attack would come, especially since he wasn't paying tribute to the Assyrians. He wasn't doing anything uh, to, to show that he was going to just stay in line. So Sennacherib does lead his armies into Judah around 701 B.C. in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign. And on their way to Judah, the Assyrians defeated the rebels in Phoenicia. Uh, And whenever they defeated those guys, it caused that alliance to just completely crumble. Everyone starts falling out whenever the Phoenicians get defeated. Uh, Sennacherib marches his armies all the way down the coast uh, and, and takes over the Philistines, brings them into the line. Then he attacks all the fortified cities of Judah. So you think about it, you've got Jerusalem, the major city there, but you've got all these other little cities that are fortified. Uh, and Sennacherib comes in and he just takes them over. He, see, he besieges all of them and, and really takes them over. And at this point in time, whenever all the fortified cities of Jerusalem, it's about 46 cities, uh, are taken over, Hezekiah goes, look, I'm sorry. I've done wrong. I resisted you. I should not have resisted you. Pretty much he goes, tell me what I need to pay you to make you just stop, right? Don't come after Jerusalem. What do I need to pay you? And he pays him a lot of money, uh, but the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, he's not going to have it. He's pretty much saying, yeah, 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 I'll take all that, but that's not enough. So the Assyrian king sets up a headquarters in Lashish, and, and he goes, I've got more that I want to do. So I want to flip over now to 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. Uh, let me read this. Or actually, I'm sorry, uh, verse 9. It's, the king of Assyria came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. It was the sixth year of Hezekiah. Uh, and in the 14th year of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And then down in verse 17, it says this, And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Now, this is the inter- most interesting character, I think, in this entire story. So what the Assyrian king has done is he sent a few of his envoys to Hezekiah in Jerusalem with the whole intent, what he wants to happen is he wants Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem to just surrender, right? Even without a battle, he wants them to surrender. So he sends these people with him. And the one of the guys you heard in there that he sends is this guy called the Rabshakeh. 
And I, I want you to think about the Rabshakeh as like the mouthpiece for the Assyrian Empire. Uh, he's like the, the hype man for the Assyrian Empire. When Cole taught this lesson, and he talked about the Rabshakeh, uh, the guy he compared him to at the time was the communication director of the White House, this guy named Anthony Scaramucci. I thought it was funny because that guy lasted seven days, if you all recall. I don't, even, I don't think he even collected a paycheck uh, before he was fired. But Cole, Cole you know, he, he goes, this got a lot like Anthony Scaramucci. So I didn't think the Scaramucci illustration was going to work anymore because, you know, he's just not as prevalent. And I didn't think it worked because Scaramucci obviously did not have the confidence of his king, right? Trump didn't have much confidence in this guy, apparently. So I, I was thinking, who does Trump have all kinds of confidence in that we could take another political illustration? And for the sake of not getting run out of this classroom, let's just consider the Rabshaka a modern-day Rudy Giuliani, right? So, so he's out there on the news cycles. He's, 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 he's the Assyrian king's hype man. He, he does the bidding of the Assyrian king. And I'm not going to go anywhere further on this political illustration than I am right now, all right? I have I've not put any pro or con at this point in time in Rudy Giuliani or Trump or anything like that. So let me stay hold to the text. So I want you to think about this, though. This guy's going out. He's speaking on behalf of the Assyrian king. And, um, and if you look at this, uh, what he's trying to, like I said, he's trying to get these guys to completely surrender. And he has a tactic that he's going to use that I want you to see. The first thing he's going to do, and if you want to look at this on your uh, note page, uh, it says, what strategy did the Rabshakeh use to sway the people of Jerusalem? He's going to come to Jerusalem, and the first thing he's going to do is he's going to try to undermine the credibility of where these guys currently have their faith. He wants to undermine the credibility of God, in, in all honesty. He wants to take the faith of the people that they have in God, the trust they have in God, and just kind of make them feel silly about the fact that they're putting all this faith in this God. He's going to undermine them first, and then once he's undermined that, that he's going to then build up and make some promises of his own. He's going to make some alternative promises from the promises of God. So what I want to do is I want to read the Rabshakeh's speech here. Uh, and, you know, we tend to look here in the Bible, we tend to make people into good guys and bad guys. And I want you to see here, the Rabshakeh, he's doing his job. Um, and he is going to do some pretty horrific things to undermine the credibility of God and what he's getting ready to say. But he's also making a decent promise to these people. So let me read this to you, and then we're going to kind of pause. I'm going to go through it. I just want you to pay attention to that tactic, though, that undermining the credibility and then making alternative promises. So let me read this to you. We're in Second Kings chapter 18. I'm going to start on verse 19. It says, And the Rabshakeh said to them, uh, let me stop there for a second. When he's saying this to them, I want you to imagine that, that you're just inside the city gates of Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is well fortified. They can't just walk through the city gates. So he's outside the gates yelling at the people who are on the gates, and everyone can hear right behind the gates. So I want you to put yourself in the shoes of those people who are either on the gates or right behind the gates of Jerusalem listening to the Rabshakeh. And, and I, I think I probably missed, the Rabshakeh's got a pretty massive army right behind him. Right, a pretty massive Assyrian army right behind him. It says, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. Just notice there, just, he did something kind of subtle there. He says, Say to Hezekiah. He doesn't even refer to Hezekiah as a king. Right? He says, Say to Hezekiah, the great king, talking about the king of Assyria, says this, On what do you rest this trust of yours? 
Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Remember that alliance that had been formed there, that the, the Judah and Egypt and the Phoenicians and the Philistines had formed that alliance. The Phoenicians and the Philistines have already been conquered at this point in time. So he goes, so Egypt, that's your boy, right? That's your boy in the corner that you're going to trust on? He goes, they're like a broken reed. It's just going to be bent and broken underneath us. And he says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? So just stop there real quick and make sure I explain that. So Hezekiah had removed all the high places and the altars. He had removed all the idol worship that had been going on. The Rabshakeh is lying to the people. He goes, he goes, you're trusting in your God, but Hezekiah has removed all the places, all the high places of worship to your God. Well, Hezekiah didn't remove any of the high places of worship to God. He'd remove the actual idols. He's, he's got a half-truth in there that he's telling the people. And just imagine, these people have got to be scared to death. And these people have not been faithful for generations. They've been led astray from king after king after king. Their spiritual maturity is probably not massive. They may very well believe what the Rabshakeh is saying there about what Hezekiah did uh, to the God. So it says this, Come now. Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. So he's going, he goes, I'll tell you what, your army and your defense is so weak. I've got 2,000 horses right here. If you can just put some riders on them, I'll give you horses for our battle. Right? So they're just making fun of them. And, and a lot of times the alliances that were formed in the past is that a lot of the kings in this area would get their horses from Egypt. So he's kind of making fun of being allied with the Egypts here as well. But he's, 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 he's undermining any credibility that they have, really saying you have no defense whatsoever. He goes, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So yet another lie, right? He's, he's, saying, he's, he's saying he's got a directive from God. And if you're these people, you may not completely disagree with that. I mean, it seems like all of God's land that he had priority over, the land of Israel, has been conquered by this guy already. All that seems to remain at this point in time that's free and sovereign under the kingdom of Judah is Jerusalem. All right, so just think about that for a second. Imagine this the entire state of Oklahoma, as an illustration, was the original kingdom of Israel and Judah combined. The Assyrians have taken over everything, and then they get to Oklahoma City, and they, they take over Bethany, and they take over the village, and they take over Yukon. They, they take over all these little other fortified areas, and, and it's kind of all that's really left is like if we built a wall around the crossings campus here, and all of us are just sitting there waiting for the Assyrians to ride in. There's not much left to these people. So if he's saying, the Lord told me to come and attack, you might actually believe the guy, right? You might actually believe him. So then it says, sell, he goes, tell these guys, um, speak, oh, so my bad. So it goes there in verse 26, there's these guys who are on the wall. It says, Ilakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah, they're on the wall, and they speak back to the Rabshakeh. And they say to him, hey, uh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. 
uh, do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So what's he saying there? He goes, he goes all, all, they're saying, all these people behind you, they can understand what you're saying. Can you please shut up and talk in a different language so these guys can't understand you? Because you're freaking out all the people, right? And, and so the Rabshakeh kind of laughs at this. And he says, uh, uh, he goes, he goes, but the Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung, to drink their own urine? So I just, I just want you to imagine for a moment being those people behind that wall. This is the most powerful empire in the world. They've conquered all your cousins, all your aunts, and all your uncles from the other tribes. You know, the, they've conquered everybody. And he goes, you're about to eat your own dung and your own urine if you keep your trust in your king, if you keep your trust in your God. So this is the critiques of the Rabshakeh. I want you to kind of see how he undermines all the credibility. Some things he says are absolutely true. Some things he says are absolute lies. Uh, he, but he is tr- really trying to degrade the trust that people have in their king and in their God. What does that remind you of? Is there any other story in the Bible that reminds you of that tactic? We've talked about it in here before. Any thoughts? Even for Major Duck? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> The serpent in the garden, right? So if you guys remember, we did a lesson a few months ago where uh, we, we broke down how Absalom, uh, one of the sons of David, was trying to take over the kingdom from David. And he used this strategy, and that strategy looks exactly like the strategy the serpent uses in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. Right? He, he sits there and he'll, he'll undermine the credibility of God, undermine the word of God, undermine the promises. He'll put some half-truths in there. Well, did he really say you can't eat of this? Well, no, he, you surely won't die. He just doesn't want you to know this. It's this same strategy that you're going to see all throughout the Bible and you're going to see in your lives today, those little things, those half-truths and, half, and lies to, to just get you to have doubt in where you're putting your trust. So not only do these guys now have doubt, uh, but he has broken them down. I mean, he's broken them down. And I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the people in this story. Uh, that, that They've really, they've got to be scared to death. They've got to be scared to death. Because like I said, it's not just their lives on the line. If I'm a, a, a dad in this story and I've got my two kids right next to me, the Assyrians are brutal, right? And if you, if you submit to the Assyrians, they'll take you and put you into another place. If you rebel against the Assyrians, they make examples of you. Uh, I think I told the story in here last week. You walk, you walk through the halls of the Assyrian palace, and you would see the flayed remains of the people who had rebelled against them. That way, when you approached the king's throne, you knew who you were dealing with. Right? Rebellion against these guys is not an option if you want to keep your life. So, once the Rabshakeh has really broken these guys down... He then makes some alternative promises to them. So let me find my place in here. I don't want to see where his promises are. Okay. So I'm going, to, I'm going to flip over to, still in chapter 18, but let's go to verse 29. It says, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me, 
Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Who among all the gods of the lands has delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. So again, he's saying, you're not going to win this battle. So why don't you just surrender? And in this land that you love, this land flowing with milk and honey, I've got another land with honey. You've, you can go sit under your own fig tree, under your own vine, which would have been an expression people would have used at that time to kind of say, you know, you can be at peace with your own property, with your own dealings. Uh, you can go and have that peace. Just surrender to me. And I have to say, that's probably a bit of a tempting promise, don't you think? That if you've seen everyone else fall to this guy, and he's saying, hey, I- I'm going to give you your own land, your own vine, your own fig tree. Uh, just come, just submit. Don't let Hezekiah, he says to trust in the Lord, or he's going to tell you to trust in the Lord here in a minute. Uh, but But don't let him fool you. Just surrender to me. I want to contrast that promise that the Rabshakeh makes to what these people would have been hearing from God at this time. And I told you, I mean, think about this. How would have God been speaking to his people during these times? Let's make sure tactically we know. How would God have actually been speaking to his people? Through the prophets, right? I want you to think about the prophets were the word of God. God would use the prophets to deliver his word, his truth to his people, whatever the message might be. So one of the prophets that God was using around this time, it was probably going to be a little bit earlier than this exact story, or it could have been right in the middle of this story, is the prophet Micah. And I want to read you the promise that comes from God through the prophet Micah. And I'll I'll just do this real quick. It's Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And this promise that God makes through his prophet Micah is after a warning of repentance. He's, he's telling his people, the people they need to repent. They need to change their ways. They need to trust in God. And one day, this promise will be delivered. And it's a promise of the Messiah that will one day come. Micah says this, or God uses Micah to say this. It goes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man under his vine, and each man under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the God, our Lord, forever and ever. So that is the message that would have been getting to the people of Judah around this time. And then they're getting that promise from God, and they're getting this other promise from the Rabshakeh. 
Well, I want you to do it at your tables for just a second. We're going to do something a little different. I want everyone who's on the south side of your tables, so we're going to try to split the tables in half. If you're on the south side of the tables, which is my right, your left, if you're looking at me, I want you to play the role of the prophets or the pray, play the role of the follower of God, and you're going to defend the promises of God as the best thing for these people to put their trust in. If you're on the left or the north side of the table, I want you to be the Rabshakeh. I want you to convince the people on the other side that you've got to trust in your promises, the, the promises of the Rabshakeh. Play that out for just a minute. And like I said, if you're the Rabshakeh, you're not going to go to hell because you're playing this role, I promise. You know, we're, we, we, you can't outsend God, right? So we just talked about that. Right? I just want you, but I want you to actually do this right. I mean, make the case that the Rabshakeh is making that uh, it's better for the people to surrender and to follow him. Have that out for a few minutes and we'll come back. All right, well, let's wrap this up here for a second. I'm curious, uh, who had the easier argument at the tables? Well, which, which side was easier to argue? The Assyrian side, wasn't it? The north side was a little bit easier. You know, we saw this, right? I mean, we saw this in the story of Absalom. You see this in the story of the serpent. It's a lot easier to put your trust in what you can feel, see, and touch right in front of you than it is to put your trust in the things you may not be able to see and the, and the promises that may be a bit more vague, a bit less clear to you. You get somebody right in front of you telling you what you can have, and it seems to be pretty safe and secure. It's very easy to put your trust in that person. The same mistake Eve made all those years ago, we make daily. Right. I, 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 the reason I ask you to do that is I, wanted to, I want us to really empathize a little bit with just how easy it is to put our trust in those kind of promises. And, you know, it would have, I, I'd love to be able to say that, that when my kids are potentially going to be tortured, that I could still put my trust in God versus the guy who is undermining my God right next to me. Right? But that's a tough decision. Right? That's not an easy thing at all. And we, we deal with this same issue today. It may not be people invading us at the gates. It may not be people threatening to relocate us to different homes. Some Christians are today. Right? There's Christians in China right now dealing with this very threat every single day. There's Christians in other places of the world dealing with this very threat every single day. And God continues to be sovereign. Right? But we deal with a similar type of issue with who we're going to put our trust in every single day. And I'm telling you, you look at your faith, even here in Oklahoma, which is so much more protected than other places in the world I've lived. But even right here, your faith will be attacked, right? The credibility of the God you worship will be undermined by many influences all around you. And once that faith, that that foundation crumbles just a little bit, alternative promises are going to be provided, Right? I mean, just think about it very simply. You can look at a couple examples of this. And for me as a, as a parent with young kids right now, you know, almost everyone around me is telling me that the best way to raise your kids or the things you need to do is let them go and do all these different things. Let them, right now my, my son's playing baseball. Oh, join a traveling tournament league, right? And, and, and be on that tournament team and, and go all over. And yeah, he's going to miss church every Sunday pretty much. But, but, but what, that's what you need to do because all of his friends are doing it. You want him to be happy, don't you? Right? So put your trust in that wisdom of the Lord or of the world versus put your trust in the wisdom that the best thing for my son, even though he may hate me temporarily, is say, no, I'm sorry, you're going to be in church, right? You're going to revolve your life around the church. That, that's a, it's a very simple example, but that's a very real problem that we see every week inside the walls of Crossings Community Church, right? If you look at your marriage, your marriage is, you know, the world's going to sit there and say, look, 
I know that the Bible says that you need to remain married, that, that, that you're supposed to be joined together in all this, this bogus nonsense. The real goal of marriage is to make each other happy. And so if you're not happy, get out of the marriage, right? She's not making you happy, well, that one probably will. Or if you're not making her happy, the best thing you can do is just walk away, right? Are we not all told that on a daily basis? I mean, I mean, think about that. How many people would answer that the role of marriage is to make each other happy? Right? I bet if you went outside the walls of the church, 95% of people would say that's the meaning of marriage. If you went inside the walls of our church, probably 80% of the people would say it's the meaning of marriage. But it's not, right? And we've talked about this before. But I think these are just really common examples that, that it's so easy to put these little half-truths. I mean, should we make each other happy in marriage? Yeah, we, we, we should, right? But, but is that the goal of marriage? Well, well, actually, no. No, it's not. But how easy it can be that once we've accepted that lie that that is the sole goal of marriage, if we're not happy at any given point in time, you know, it, it, it just, the marriage will fail. And there's all kinds of reasons that marriages fail, and, and uh, many of us in this room have been through failed marriages, right? So I don't want, I'm not trying to make a marriage sermon in here, but I just know that that's a big thing in the world that I talk to a lot of young people about is I'm not happy I'm not being fulfilled, so I'm going to go on to the next thing in life, whether that be just anything. Uh, I'm not going to trust in the promises and in the sovereignty of God. So we all deal with these temptations, these, these alternative promises, after we have been undermined in our credibility. And what I want you to see is that Hezekiah gives us a great, great example of what to do when this happens. If you're reading this story, what we find Hezekiah does, the king of Judah, is that when he's faced with this great temptation, uh, whenever he's faced with, with this just unsurmountable odds, the first thing he does is he goes to God, right? He absolutely goes to God. And I want to read you just kind of how this story unfolds real fast, and we'll close with a little bit of application. So I'm going to go to chapter 19 of 2 Kings and start there in verse 6. And uh, it says this, it says, thus says the Lord, Isaiah is, is talking to Hezekiah, it says, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I'll make him fall by the sword in his own land. That's the promise God gives. And it says, so now, going over to verse 19, it says, So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that the kingdoms of the earth may know you, O Lord, that you are God alone. Hezekiah says, not only am I worried about my people, but I'm worried about your name, God. Save us and save your name. I want your name to be glorified above all. And then Isaiah says this, it says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. There's a lot of words in here. I'm going to skip down to verse 28. He says, I will put my hook in your nose. Talk about the king of Assyria this, to Sennacherib. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. If you go to verse 32, this is how it ends. He says, God says, he, talking about Sennacherib, shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Just think about that real quick. 
the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 in the camp. Then in verse 36, it says, Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, his son struck him down with the sword and escaped into the other land, and his next son reigned in his place. All the promises of God came true uh, in this story. And God did a supernatural thing to make this happen. Against all odds, they turned to God, and God delivered them. Now, how do we turn to God? I just want to make sure we actually know this. Tactically, how do we turn to God in our lives? You build up, you think about an athlete. An athlete's going to build up their muscle and build up their endurance and everything before they ever go play the game, right? We want to be building up our faith, building up our understanding, building up the trust that we have in our God, you know, in the good times so that when the bad times come, you can work. I, I used to be in the oil and gas business, and one of the things I used to do every time there was a bust is I would look back on the people who were running the company during the boom times, and I would just get angry and shake my fist at them, right? Because they made lots of stupid decisions in the good time that when the bad times come, we were laying off 40% of the workforce, right? So same thing here. When we've got good things going in life, that's not the time to take your foot off the gas pedal in your relationship with God, right? Build up that faith. The way we turn to God is very simple. Prayer by itself is the easiest way for us to show that we are dependent upon God, we're not dependent upon the Egypts of the world or the Phoenicians or the Philistines of the world. We're dependent upon God and God alone. By praying, we're showing him that on a daily basis. We go to church to be a part of the body because he's told us to. He tells us he'll accomplish more through the body than he can do through us on our own. We read his word. Just like in this point in time, Hezekiah, when he's confronted with these odds, he turns to the Lord by going to a prophet of the Lord. He goes to Isaiah. We don't have modern-day prophets walking around. As good as Marty is, he's not a modern-day prophet. Uh, but what we have is the actual word of God, right? We, we go to the word and, and read the word on a daily basis because he will work through it. And, and we live it. You know, we live our faith on each day, even during the good times. I think it's a very good uh, comment. We live out our faith knowing that we're worshiping a God, we're following a God who is actually going to keep his promises. I've, I've loved that theme all through this Old Testament study we've been doing. It keeps coming up to me that our God is a God who keeps his promises over and over again. And we see that here as well. God deliver his, delivered his people in supernatural ways. And it's such an incredible number. It's such an incredible story here that it's almost easy for us to believe that this story is not true. 185,000 people is not a small army. Back, I mean, we hear that number and we think about the millions of people who serve in our armed forces, our, our armed forces today. But back in this point in time, that's not how standing armies worked. You didn't have these massive numbers in armies like you do today. 185,000 people is a good percentage of the Assyrian army, I'm sure. This on your note page, I just want to show you this, this prism that's on your note page. These are, this is actual words that have been written down uh, that was uncovered from the ruins of the Assyrian Empire. And there's a few of these that were found. And what they do is they tell the story of the conquest of the Assyrian kings. And so these, this is like, you know, the guy writing these would have been the guy getting paid by the Assyrian king. So it's going to be embellished pretty well. But they wanted to tell the story of their conquest. And in this story, on, this, um, on the Sennacherib prism, uh, what it says is this. 
It says, as for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns taken in battle with my battering rams. I took as plunder 200,000 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. I then constructed a series of fortresses around him, and I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. What's missing from that? Never conquered Jerusalem, did he? If, 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 if he had, why in the world would he not have included that he conquered Jerusalem if he hadn't have done it? Right? And I just think it's fascinating that we have archaeological evidence that tells us this biblical account is actually true. The Bible tells us all these other things happened. All the fortified cities were conquered. People were displaced from the lands. Everything they, took, they, they had. But God preserved his remnant in Jerusalem. And we're going to see God preserve his remnant through even dip, more difficult times when the Babylonians come in. But he preserves his promise even when that becomes a small remnant of people. He is a God who keeps his promises. I believe in a supernatural God. And I believe, just to wrap this up today, I think, I think you know, we have other promises of God that are always going to be under attack. And I think as we transition to our lesson next week, as we transition to the Christmas lesson, you know, the promise that's under attack right now, I think, is, is honestly, can you believe the actual reality of Jesus Christ? Uh, I, I was going back and forth on a Twitter uh, feed this week where a very, very smart person was just completely saying, you know, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ makes no sense whatsoever. This girl was just hiding her infidelity, right? And you start to undermine that key tenet of the Christian faith, and the rest of it just falls away. But we have a God who keeps our promises, and God made this promise through his prophet Micah that I want to leave you with before we get going uh, into the lesson next week, talking about the type of God we worship. And so, so remember, we read chapter 4 of Micah, talking about the promises of God for the Messiah who would one day come. In chapter 5 of Micah, he says this to these people at this time. He goes, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Next week, what we get to talk about is that promise getting fulfilled, right? In the eyes of, of one of the most ruthless kings of this crazy, paranoid, powerful genius of a king named Herod, we get to talk about that promise that's going to come true. And I just want you to, to, to see this. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise of God that he gives to his people in a very, very difficult time that in the weakest of cities, in the weakest of areas in his kingdom, he's going to bring forth the king of kings, the Lord of Lords. So come back next week. We're going to talk about Jesus and Herod the Great. It'll be a fun lesson, uh, and we'll, we'll wrap up the year with that. Let me, um, let me pray for us before we get out of here. Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you for this time. I thank you for this church, and I thank you for your promises. I thank you more so for the promise of Christ that was given to people in much more difficult times than what we live. And we're on the other side of that promise today. I thank you that you have moved in supernatural ways through history for your people, for your glory, and that we can trust that you're going to do that today. We are not only in this world to be around what we can see, touch, and feel with our own eyes and our own hands. We live life to a sovereign God who is across all spheres.
And we thank you for your power and your glory and your might, that we may trust in that and that alone, even when the temptations of the world are all around us. May you give us complete confidence in your word, in your son, in your spirit, that we may follow you against all odds, even when we're under attack and even when the promises of this world are so tempting. May we be yours. May you guide us each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.